Hi, this is Len Testa, host of the Unofficial Guide's Disney Dish Podcast. This is our first show for February 2015, and as you're listening to this, Jim and I are on location in Orlando, Florida, recording new episodes in and around Walt Disney World. Those should be out later this month. In the meantime, even more great theme park stories by Jim and me are available over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. These are new shows, completely different from the shows here on iTunes, and cover everything from construction updates at Disney's Hollywood Studios to what's going on at the Animal Kingdom. If you'd like to consider supporting our show for, say, a couple dollars a month so that guys like Jim and our fabulous producer Aaron can make a little money, that would be super cool of you. Either way, enjoy the show, and thanks for listening. Welcome back to another edition of the Unofficial Guide Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's February 1st, so this is our first episode for February, and we're continuing on our chronological Disneyland story with the history of Splash Mountain. And before we do that, just like Star Wars, there's a there's a set of prequel shows that we've got to go through. And to start with that prequel show, one Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? This is the Phantom Wet Menace, <laughs> or Attack of the Soaked Clones. I'm, I'm not sure where it fits in the chronology here. but I think Attack of the Phantom Wet Menace is the title that the FBI gave to your dossier. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> so we're talking about uh, Splash Mountain is a classic flume ride, right? Yeah. It opened at, at the park in July 17, 1989, and, and that's 34 years uh, to the day that Disneyland first opened to the public. Uh, truth be told, Walt had wanted uh, a water thrill ride like Splash mountain to be part of the park's opening day lineup as far back as 53 the imagineers were noodling on this idea but it came down to finding just the right mix of characters story and most importantly ride system uh, that would mm. allow guests to have some water-based thrills that are still safe and an attraction that's easy to operate and it's easy to understand why walt wanted this attraction to be part of the park i mean there have been water-based thrill rides for as far back as there have been amusement parks we're setting up today's show i actually sent len a, a link to a youtube video which was a, a fatty arbuckle comedy from 1917 called coney island was actually shot on location at this New York City classic, this seaside amusement park. And this silent film is, is notable for two reasons. One, it was shot so early in Buster Keaton's career. Actually, Fatty Arbuckle discovered Buster Keaton and sort of brought him into the silent film world. What's great about this movie is you actually watch it, the great stone face, that was what Keaton was called back in the day because he had just one deadpan expression throughout all his films. But it's early enough that you see him smiling and emoting, and it's a, it's really kind of freaky if you know Keaton's earlier work. And nine minutes and 25 seconds into the silent film, you actually see a shoot the shoots in action. And if you look at this thing, I mean, and this is well before there was an OSHA, well before, you know, safety, theme park. What are you, people crazy? Yeah. Climbed this set of stairs. You got to the top of this ramp. You boarded this boat. And then just at a key point, they let go of the brake and it slides down this water covered ramp into an artificial pond where like a rock being thrown across a lake, your boat now skips across the water before it finally comes to a stop. And if you look at the footage, it looks thrilling, but it was also, you had to have a, a, an operator on every boat to operate these things. So it was a expensive to operate it was difficult to maintain it was one of the reasons why there weren't a lot of parks that had this attraction only the bigger amusement parks like coney island luna park or the santa monica amusement pier had one yeah. of these not to mention it looks it looks dangerous as hell i mean the fatty arbuckle movie that you're mentioning it shows that it's essentially a flat bottom boat and you made yep. the analogy about skipping across the water like a rock mm -hmm. and that's exactly what the boat does 
And, yep. and uh, you, you'll also notice the boat has no safety equipment. There are no seat belts. There are no life preservers. There are no, there's no cushions in case you you fall forward. And I, I must point out that uh, New York actually gets cold in the winter. So yep. it, it really, really rudimentary sort of shoot the mm-hmm. shoots ride. But uh, but okay, you can kind of see where the idea of a flume ride comes from from that. And Walt clearly had seen one of these back in the day, which oh. is why. In the early 50s, when he and the first Imagineers were dumbing out ideas for Disneyland, one of the attractions proposed for a Fantasyland was a Pinocchio-themed shoot-the-shoots attraction. The idea was much in the style of the Coney Island ride, or rather, kind of an interesting bend on it. The guests didn't climb the hill and then get in the boat. You boarded in a lagoon that was at the bottom. You got in where your ride ended, mm-hmm. and the boat then followed a track. And sitting in the middle of the lagoon is this giant version of Monster of the Whale from Pinocchio, with his mouth wide open and his tongue basically forming the ramp the boat would go down. Right, so the monster's body is sort of tilted at a 45-degree angle up, mm-hmm. and his tongue is sort of hanging out of his, his mouth. We'll, we'll post the links to the art on the show notes. So anyway, you board the boat, you go around the lagoon, you eventually enter a show building back behind where the whale's tail is located, and as you shoot the shoot boat is winched up the interior ride hill to the launching point, you pass a bunch of tableaus that recreate memorable moments from that 1940 Walt Disney Studios release. And we're not talking about animatronic figures here, folks. This is early 50s, so picture the level of animation that you typically get with a window display at, say, the Emporium. Top of the ride hill, you pass a show scene where Pinocchio and Geppetto are trapped inside of Monster of the Whale, and they're getting ready to escape. And suddenly, here's your boat sliding down Monstro's tongue, and as the whale roars in anger, and as you slide down the tongue, there's a water spout that comes out of the top, and your boat skips across the lagoon. I mean, it was, you know, a fun idea, and it was actually going to be one of two water-based attractions that were proposed for Disneyland's Fantasyland section. The other one, right next door to this, was going to be called the Duck Bumps. And yes, I know, instead of Goose Bumps, you have Duck Bumps, but this is a bumper boat ride. And it was themed around you know, that irascible Disney star, Donald Fauntleroy Duck. And another interesting little bend on the story that right next door to this thing was going to be a Ferris wheel that was actually themed around the Disney short from 37, the old mill. So you had this sort of water base section that had the old mill. And the gimmick was that on the blades of the windmill were going to be hanging these giant wooden shoes. And guests would ride around inside of those. And what I always love about when you write about Disney is ideas never go away. So we jump to the 1990s now and Mm -hmm. Disneyland Paris has just opened. And they need to increase capacity to the park. So they dig back into the files. And what do they find? They find the plans for the old mill at Disneyland. And they pulled that out. They set it up at that park. And it turns out that didn't work out. First of all, because they were actually close to Holland, building the park in Paris. And there was some concern about the Dutch might be kind of offended to come to a park and like, hey, climb in a giant wooden shoe. So... <laughs> It's like making the arms out of baguettes. I mean, you would just never, yeah, would never do that, right? Okay. Kind right. of on the nose. So they changed it to this wooden bucket. There was a series of eight wooden buckets that were actually, and they didn't hang off the windmill themselves. They were on the backside of the building, and it was supposedly the windmill that was powering the bucket spinning. But it turns out it was low capacity. It was hard to operate, hard to load. And it was open from 93 to 2000, and then they swapped it out, shut down the ride, basically, and turned it into a snack bar. <laughs> the ride had previously, the mechanical equipment was, you know, was, was taken out, and 
this is where you got some ice cream and coffee and that sort of thing. I mean, the buckets actually remained at the end of the building for the better part of a decade. You know, there were always Disneyland Paris fans who were kind of hoping it would come back someday. But sure. finally, in 2011, they got jerked out. I love how history sort of folds back in on itself. So as part of this expansion in 93, Fantasyland at Disneyland Paris also got its own version of Disneyland Storybook Canal Boat Rides, which when this attraction opened in 56 at the original Disneyland, how do you begin your ride in this Fantasyland attraction? You are in a boat. And now you're going into Monster of the Whale. So the shoot, the shoot, the concept art was, it was created to sell the shoot, the shoot rides. Walt looked for a sponsor, couldn't get one, but he loved that image. So he found a way to bring it into Disneyland. That's how you begin the storybook uh, canal boats now in Disneyland. You go through Monster's yeah. Mouth. It wasn't just Walt who loved that piece of concept art, which, by the way, was done by Bruce Bushman, who did a lot of the early, early development for Fantasyland at Disneyland. Another gentleman who really liked this artwork was Nate Weinkoff, who was Disneyland's original general manager. In fact, he was the very first outsider that Walt hired when he was getting wet up out of the ground. And Nate played a really crucial role in the creation of Disneyland. And in fact, if you dig down into the first accounts when Walt's walking the concept of his family fun park out, he actually refers to Nate as his pitch man. He's the guy who's who's talking with the press and explaining what the various ride shows and attractions are. And he, wow. he also goes out and does a lot of the legwork to line up sponsors. Nate leaves WED in the late 1950s and goes out and sets up his own theme park design company. It was a popular thing to do in the late 50s. It was. Okay. And one of the very first projects that Weinkoff and company work on is... Bible Storyland, which was this, I swear to God, probably Portrait of Works. Works, yes. But this was a theme park that was initially announced in 1960s that was going to use stories and characters from the Bible as a springboard for various ride shows and attractions that were going to be built at this theme park. This was a real thing, folks. It was, it was going to be built on 220 acres of land out in Cucamonga, California. And one of the senior officers of this enterprise was, I kid you not, Jack Haley, the guy who played the Tin Woodsman in the MGM's 1939 big screen fantasy, The Wizard of Oz. Wow. And Weinkoff really wanted to hit the ground running with this Bible-themed theme park. So he reaches out to people that he'd worked with with Walt when they were originally planning Disneyland. And one of the people that Nate hires is Bruce Bushman, the guy who developed a lot of Fantasyland. And... Weinkoff basically pulls Bruce aside and goes, look, I don't want you to reinvent the wheel here. You and I both know there's a lot of ideas that we put together for Disneyland that didn't make it off the boards or, or there's stuff that we could adapt here and, and get going much faster. We wouldn't have to do the two and three years of development that Walt did. So when you take that into consideration, you look at some of the concept out. I mean, for example, I sent you that slide of the Flight to Heaven ride. Yeah. Go ahead, describe it. It's uh, at night. You've got a mother and a child. I think it's a daughter being carried in what looks like a blanket, but the blanket yep. is sort of C-shaped, much mm -hmm. like the shape of a Peter Pan. There, uh, we, go. <laughs> Peter, there we go. A Peter Pan ship. It is being held aloft by angels. So seemingly the ride vehicle would be suspended from above. Mm -hmm. That's what well, it looks like to me as a casual observer. Actually, Len, those aren't angels. Those are cherubs. And why that's important is because one of the things that Bruce worked on prior to Disneyland was Fantasia. And the section of the film that he worked on was the Ludwig von Beethoven's Pastoral. 
which of course features lots and lots of fat little cherubs. So the recycling went really deep here, <laughs> especially when you look at the Jonah and the Whale ride. I made sure to send Len a copy of the Monstro, the Whale Shoot the Shoots concept art. And you tell them, you put those two side by side, and how much variation is there between these two? So one is Disney and one is Jonah and the Whale? Yep. Oh, it is. They are, I, I thought that they were, <laughs> this is going to be funny. I thought that they were two different versions of the same ride, Jim. <laughs> I thought it was no, that's it exactly. It's They're the same thing, yeah. Identical. I think all that Bushman did was change the placement of the whale's eyes. So it's sort of like, it could be Monstro or it could be just another big sperm whale with a tongue that people could possibly ride down. To be, um, to be fair, the Jonah the Whale version, the tail is tilting left, and in the Disney version, the tail is tilting right. So, Well, there we go. Completely different, Jim. Completely different. And I'm sure the attorney is good. <laughs> this is why we have lawyers. If you look at a lot of the work that was done for Bible Story Lit, it is so obviously the Disney playbook, whether it's the park itself, whether you can actually lay the site plan for your Bible story land over Disneyland and they were virtual mirror image coupled with the fact that opening day Disneyland, the big attraction, the thing that people lined up for for hours with the jungle cruise. So what does this park have? It has a garden of Eden boat ride where if you look closely at that art, and I'm not even sure there were creationists back then, but it's intermixed with these scenes of these vignettes with Adam and Eve are dinosaurs. Dinosaurs, right. It's a couple of things. Number one, the garden of Eden ride looks exactly like are mm-hmm. very similar to the the Jungle Cruise to the point where you pass by uh, waterfalls to begin with, mm-hmm. then you get into an elephant scene. There are apes. It looks like even the flow of it counterclockwise and the and the structure of the the show building looks uh, or the the load building looks the same. But Bible Storylands for a variety of reasons, which which I hope Len and I will get into in a future set of podcasts, never made it off the drawing board. Which isn't to say that the Imagineers or other folks who worked in themed entertainment ever entirely gave up on the idea of getting an attraction that made use of that old shoot-the-shoot setup or, you know, those thrills and, and getting them to a Disney theme park. I mean, as recently as 1990, when WDR was dummying out plans for Disney California Adventure, there's early concept art for that theme park's Paradise Pier section that shows the Imagineers were planning on building a shoot-the-shoots rides that would have stood between California Screaming and the Orange Stinger, which, which has since been rethemed as the Silly Symphony Swings. Sent lend some concept art that shows, you know, this Paradise Pier attraction earlier this morning, and there's a couple of different variations on it. One would have had folks splash down actually in Paradise Lagoon. Now, I don't see how they could have done that because that's where the World of Color show is being staged. Yeah, no way. But that's but you're right, though, and it's got the same uh, Ferris wheel idea, too. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, there's a version of this that would have created a splashdown area where this uh, shoot-the-shoots would have had its own pool, which would actually have been built where the boardwalk pizza and pasta, the Paradise Garden Grill, and the beer garden that connects these two restaurants is now located at DCA. Because you can still see in the second one, you've got mm-hmm. what looks like the California Screaming infrastructure. You've mm-hmm. got what was the Orange Stinger, and then you can still see in the background sort of the Mickey's Fun Wheel background there. But So you're saying that the, the splashdown wouldn't have occurred in the World of Color Lagoon. It would have been in a water area adjacent to it? Yeah, a self-controlled lagoon. I mean, if you look closely at it, the, the idea was that the shoot-the-shoots would have 
traveled through and around California screaming, sort of this intertwined spaghetti kind of idea. So you would have had the thrill of your log flume kind of a thing moving through this space with a roller coaster, you know, zooming around you. So it was a fun idea. But in the end, as with a lot of California adventure, it was just a question of we don't have the money for that. You know, maybe right. that's phase two. <laughs> It's you know, the rebuild. It's the rebuild. <laughs> there we go. In the 40-plus years that the Imagineers have been looking for a way to bring a shoots the shoot ride to Anaheim, there were big changes in themed entertainment, things that were going on in the industry. I mean, for example, the folks at our development, that Mountain View California company that actually built a lot of the ride vehicles and ride systems that powered Disneyland's opening day attractions, they developed a variant on the shoot the shoots that they called a log flume which delivered the same sort of thrills, but in a far easier to operate format in a setup that was is much safer for theme park guests. And the very first of these doesn't get built in a park till 1963. And it, it opens in Arlington, Texas at Six Flags Over Texas, which just to show you how the world bends in on itself, that park was built by C.V. Wood, the first <laughs> vice president of Disneyland. But Arrow, being as ambitious as they are, I mean, they sell it to Six Flags, and they also sell it to Cedar Point. And these two attractions open within weeks of, of one another in 1963 and are, are hugely popular. And so parks around the country begin pursuing these systems. And in fact, uh, it, Knott's Berry Farm, just down the road from Disneyland, opens its own variation on it, the Timber Mountain Log Ride in 1969, which... What they did is they took the Arrow Log Flume ride system and then combined it with a Disney-esque ride experience. So guests ah. floated by these very highly themed show scenes just up the street in Anaheim. Here are the people who take surveys. As you're leaving the park, they want to find out how your day went and what you enjoyed and what can we do in the future that will get you to come back. And it's about this time that the phrase log flume starts showing up in the what do you want to see next at Disneyland and now you have Dick Nunes who is the president of Disney Parks and Resorts sorry mm -hmm. he's the guy who writes herds on the attractions for the parks and he's seeing these survey results come in and Dick was an opening day employee I mean he actually worked with Van France he was the guy who set up Disney University the thing that trained all of the Disneyland employees and he knew he knew from being there on site and having dealt with Walt, that Walt had always wanted a water-based thrill ride in the park. So he starts pushing back hard against the Imagineers. It's like, look, people are asking for this. we got to find a way to bring this into Disneyland. And likewise, can we find a way to bring it to Walt Disney World? Because this is opening at Knott's Berry Farm in 69. Disney World opens in 71. And, right. you know, they're looking at their five-year plan. But the problem was, from an Imagineering point of view... There just isn't an IP or a set of characters that the Imagineers feel confident that he could build this attraction around. And they didn't want to go with Pinocchio. Well, no. Part of the problem was that they had already committed to the Pinocchio Dark Ride, which at that time, the plan was that that was going to be built as part of the Dumbo Circus. That was when they were building Discovery Bay we're in this period where Star Wars land prep is underway because a lot of the land they're clearing right now mm -hmm. is where Discovery Bay would have been built. And the pass-through from Fantasyland to Discovery Bay was going to be this area called Dumbo Circus. 
that's actually where the theater right now, where Dumbo Circus was supposed to be built, is where the theater where Mickey and the Magical Map, that's Park Yeah, yeah, right there. On the left, on the way to Toontown. Yeah. So they're going through the entire Disney library looking for something that can build a log flume right around. And eventually... At this point, they settle on a short that the company had made in 1958 called Paul Bunyan. Kind of a no-brainer because it's like Paul Bunyan chops down trees, logs, you know, get set down the river. It's like, okay. Sure. So they begin development on it. And... But the part of the problem is that you know, there's a lyrics to this. In fact, again, you can go on, on YouTube and watch this 17-minute long short. In the song, they refer to Paul being 63 axe handles high which the Imagineers sussed that out, and it turns out that it means that Paul is 94 feet tall. So it's like, well, it's a Paul Bunyan attraction. He should appear at some point in the ride, and should we build the building so Paul is standing over the building, and also this involves Babe the Blue Ox. Right. It then becomes a situation, in fact, it's kind of interesting that we were talking in, on some of our more recent podcasts about High test balloons. Yeah, go over at uh, near Fantasia Mini Golf. Yeah, and it's one of these things where it's like, so he's 94 feet tall, and that's taller than the castle. Not quite as tall as the Matterhorn, but it's like, okay, so where do we put this figure? And Yeah, you know, you've, got prob- you've got a problem with scale immediately, right? Yeah, and so yeah. they created this sort of faux wilderness out behind Country Bear. They actually move a lot of the taller trees out to bear country to create this faux wilderness. It's like, well, hell, we'll just create a path that goes along the backside of the rivers of America. And again, in the very same place that Star Wars land is being built now. And we'll put our flume right out there. And that way we solve two problems. We have this thing where bear country isn't connected to the rest of the park. But if we put our flume ride back there, what they envisioned was a path that would sort of start in where the Big Thunder Ranch area was built that would go around Rivers of America. Middle of this area, you'd have your Paul Bunyan flume run, and then there would be a path that would connect it back through the forest to bear country. And it just, it was like, okay, so it solves uh, a bunch of our problems. And it connects the, to the lands around it. I can kind of see it. I mean, other than the fact that you've got to build a giant Paul Bunyan and a giant Babe the Ox... Yep. I'm with you. All right, so go ahead. So what happens? In the end, it just it came down to a push from the younger Imagineers versus the older Imagineers. And they were like... Ask, I was going to ask you this question about the IP selection here. Okay, go ahead. For a lot of the younger Imagineers who were the ones paying attention to what George Lucas and Steven Spielberg was up to, it's like this was a, a short from 58 that really hadn't resonated with the company. I mean, the only way people were familiar with it is every so often it would show up on the Disneyland television show. Disney had done heroes from American Tall Tales. In fact, mm-hmm. I remember Bruce Gordon once telling me that he had actually done a presentation for a redo of the Rivers of America because everyone got on the boat, the steamboat of the Columbian, made a journey around, and you're looking at, well, plastic deer. And then you're looking at the cabin where, all right, the guy is either shot in the chest or he's drunk too much and he's fallen asleep in front of his house that's burning. I mean, it it was one of these things where, particularly in the 70s and the 80s, this is lame. This is bad show. We should find a way to make this more entertaining. And 
what Bruce proposed, let's get on the Mark Twain, let's get on the Columbia and go on a journey that celebrates the American tall tale. So you'd come around a bend mm. in the river and here was this giant boot just sitting there and that you'd then get the audio talking about Paul Bunyan and then you'd come across a statue of Pecos Bill and they'd tell the story of Pecos Bill and you'd see the Conestoga wagon in the sky for Windwagon Smith and I mean he, he made this pitch trying to take these things that Disney had created in the 50s and the 40s and, and bring them into the parks in the end it's just sort of like poor Bruce was trying to sell this at a time that where Disneyland Entertainment was looking to for the money and the backing within the company for Fantasmic, which changed forever how the Rivers of America was operated. It's not a bad idea for Rivers of America because it fits into the period of Mark Twain and <laughs> Samuel Clemens and the Tall Tales and stuff like that. Yep. I get it. It's it's not the same thing. It's not in the same league as as Fantasmic. But I want to go back to something you said before. So the mm -hmm. Imagineers look at Paul Bunyan and they mm -hmm. and they see this is IP. This is a story from 25 years ago that mm -hmm. didn't really resonate with people. Yep. But we know how the story ends with them landing on Song of the South. Yep. <laughs> Which is IP that Disney has banished from the North American markets for going on 70 years. Yeah, and I have to admit, it's a weird duality that you take one thing that was created in 58 and go, no, we can't do that. But the, the characters from 46, it's like, yes. I will say this much that when we're going to get into this in the next installment, but okay. they really did a lot of testing on Song of the South. In fact, Song of the South, when Eisner came through the door, they had mm -hmm. developed the attraction in 83. They showed it to Eisner when he arrives in 84. He was hesitant enough that he insisted that they release the film to theaters just so he could see what would happen. And they actually put it out in theaters, I want to say Christmas of 85. It was only out for two weeks. And they sat back and it's like, okay, the hate mail starts now. And there was no hate mail. Right. It actually did really good box office. I think you and I talked about this a couple of years ago, but mm -hmm. the word of mouth spread about Song of the South in such a way that the revenue that they made the second weekend it was open was better than Absolutely. the revenue it made the first weekend. It still mm -hmm. made several million dollars. It did. This was during a time when the practice was that every seven years a classic film would come out of the library because the, the thinking within the company is every seven years is a, a new generation of young kids who haven't seen these films and you put them out mm -hmm. in theaters long before Blu-ray, DVD. We're talking 85. Disney's only just gotten its home entertainment division up out of the ground and, and right. is putting films out there. To circle back to the Paul Bunyan idea, they created a story. So basically, you get in the queue and you're told that Paul Bunyan has just cleared a, a massive forest and you're entering this lumber mill. But there's a logjam within the mill because Paul is so big, he can't get into the mill. So can you get in the mill and board this log and go through and help clear the jam? And there was actually supposedly a great show moment at the end where basically Paul is leaned down and looking in the window and like, thanks for clearing the log jam. <laughs> and then you exit through the timber-themed gift shop. Sure. In the end, what actually got a flume ride built at Disneyland wasn't a log jam, but a traffic jam. But we'll get to that in the next installment of the Chronological Disneyland. Great preview there, Jim. All right, so this, is, uh, this has been super interesting stuff. I'll get the uh, concept art and the links to the Fatty Arbuckle movie 
clip on YouTube into the show notes that we have. You've been listening to the Unofficial Guide to Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. Please go on to iTunes and Stitcher and rate our show. Also, there are additional episodes available at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. All of those shows are produced fabulously, I might add, by one Aaron Adams. Please go on to Stitcher and iTunes, Ritter Show, and tell us what you would like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.